You know, you would be surprised at how much I've actually learned from selling cotton candy and peanuts and how that's actually applied to performance marketing. I kind of think of this from like from a cohort perspective. It's just there's so much demand for every section when they want beer, when they want ice cream, when they want hot dogs and things like that. And so much of it is really more being at the right place at the right time. A lot less of it is getting someone to buy a bag of peanuts who has no interest in buying a bag of peanuts. So I would say this is definitely much more performance marketing. How do you harvest demand? than it is like, how do I go create desires and wants? I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When it comes to the distribution of information, one of the oldest channels on the internet, that's email. Well, some people say email is a channel that is dead, no longer relevant. Other people say it's underutilized in every respect. And when it comes to email, well, it's been a very strong tool, a very strong distribution channel for us in being able to spread our information, everything we do from an education and editorial standpoint. And so Will Wong, one of the partners at Andreessen Horowitz, a lead investor in Levels, Will has deep experience when it comes to things like email marketing. Will spent a lot of time throughout his career learning about the strength of email, the ways in which you can use it as a channel to engage people. Sometimes email is thought of as being a distraction, something that's low value. But when done right, email can be a very strong lever in building engagement an audience that cares about what you're doing. And so JM, Josh Moore, head of global operations, Will Wong and myself, the three of us sat down and discussed this idea of email marketing. Why is email such a strong channel to consider and how can companies think about it moving forward? It was a great conversation and here's where we kick things off. Well, this is awesome, I appreciate you doing this and taking the time to walk through thought it would be fun for the three of us to jam on all things email life cycle growth marketing in general and riff on both your path like you've had such a an interesting path and seen so many different aspects of growth and digital through different companies and then now being a partner in vc on the other side of the table and walk through some of those things so i mean if we take it all the way back there as a digression, there must have been some contention between being the cotton candy guy for the A's <laughs> at the same time that you were the peanut guy for the Giants, which is an interesting juxtaposition between the two teams. But uh, it's the American League and National League. So I think you're typically safe, right? <laughs> yeah, you have a Bay Area rivalry. They have, uh, it's not so big these days, but you know, every year, at least in those early 2000s, they would have the Battle of the Bay. You get bragging rights between the East Bay and San Francisco. And I, I guess folks don't remember this, but you know, the last time the major earthquake happened here in 89, uh, that was the uh, A's World Series, A's and Giants, A's won. And because the World Series was going on during the earthquake here, it actually ended up saving a ton of lives because everyone was home watching the game. Uh, wow. I remember That's that. That's a good that, stat. Jose, that, I mean, that was a stacked team to go down yep. that path. Jose Canseco. I think Jose. McGuire was on that team. 
McGuire, uh, Canseco. What was it? Ricky the, Henderson was also Ricky on Anderson. That team. Yep, yep. All-time steals leader. But those are some stacked teams. And I think for me, I'm Oakland born and raised. I'm a, a diehard A's fan. And uh-huh. so on one hand, I love being at A's games, but I would never focus on selling cotton candy. And so, <laughs> and, and when I took the Giants job in high school, it was called Pac Bell Park. And now they went through its fifth name change. I think it's now Oracle. It was a lot nicer. So, you know, it, I got to do best of both. And, and I think what most folks don't know is there's all these like these friendly local team deals. So generally what happens is when the A's are in town, the Giants are on the road. And then when the Giants are in town, the A's are on the road. So you very rarely get any type of overlap. Hmm. You balance both. I was a diehard A's fan in the late 80s. And then when Barry Bonds joined the Giants, I was diehard Giants fan. That was yep. all I could do. And But you follow the path of the top performers. Yeah. And you know, you would be surprised at how much I've actually learned from selling cotton candy and peanuts and how that's actually applied to performance marketing. And so how it actually works in, in, the, uh, in the vending game is that you make about 20% of all commissions. So it's entirely commissioned. And before you go out, there's like a pecking order between who's most tenured and who's newest. You know, we were like in high school, so we get the last pick. And so you always have to strategically pick what you're going to sell. So if it's a hot day, go for ice cream. You could go for soda and water, but you're carrying 50 pounds up and down the, uh, the aisles, and you really have to sell those quick. If you're in Oakland, there's a lot more kids. Cotton candy is the way to go. The Giants have an older fan base, and peanuts are the way to go. And what happens is there's an unwritten code where you're not allowed to, if you see a vendor in like the same aisle, you're not allowed to go down that same path. And what happens is around the fourth inning, everyone wants ice cream, especially in the nice seats. And so all the ice cream guys rush there and it becomes a little game of like, which aisles do you go first? You're eyeing where the other ice cream guys so that you get there before they do. And when you get there, you have to go figure out what your pitch is, what your call to action is. And over time, you end up figuring out what actually sells the most. You figure out how long you linger, how long you go down aisles, how good you are at like spotting people who are looking to buy what you got to sell. And you'd be surprised that that's almost exactly how like early days performance and marketing was. It's just how do you optimize your CTA? What message do you use? What time do you like target a certain ad or target a certain audience? All that type of stuff. And uh, I was actually surprised like, oh, hey, these, these peanut days are like really applied to my like adult life career. Yeah, that's so funny. I mean, it's true. It's almost one of those things that This American Life actually did an episode on, and I want to say it might have been on one of the teams in the Bay Area. I'm probably just, this is confirmation bias, and it probably is not that, but they definitely did an episode, and it was all about exactly what you're saying. And it's funny that the way it works is very analogous to if you think about marketing, like you're essentially running mini campaigns every time you go to a new area. Yep. You have to know your audience. And in, in this case, you need to know your section. You know what that section buys at a what inning they buy it. And you need to get, also get the free competitors. To, <laughs> friendly competition, but at the end of the day, you need to get there. Or you need to know that if the ice cream guy just hit that aisle, it's actually okay to be right after because some people need a little bit more time to decide that they want ice cream. But if you wait a little too long, there's an optimal time and a poor time as well. Yeah. I love the analogy because really, if you all head to the best section it kind of becomes not the best section anymore yep because all the supply is there and you could be better off going somewhere else and i think that metaphor really extends right there are places where you can go and selling through ads is just going to be so expensive because everyone else is there and and just so so y'all know too you know these are real differences especially if this is like a side income for you 
the minimum you can make by making the wrong choice of wrong product and hitting all the wrong aisles, you make maybe 40 bucks a game. If you get the best product and you hustle, you move fast, you get every aisle, you're making like 300 bucks a game. So it's like yeah. a real difference. And, you know, you compound that over like the 80 home games you get per team. Like it, it starts to add up. It sounds like you almost have to manufacture your own demand in some cases. Like you're going yeah. and if it's not a hot day and you're on ice cream, you really have to manufacture the demand for that. Yep. <laughs> you have to run a pretty tight process to make sure that you are getting people the product that they think they want. 100%. Were people like looking for the thing you were selling or did you feel like it was more a split second decision? They see you, oh, I'd like that. I could use some ice cream or cotton candy or, or is it someone who's saying like, when I sit down, I'm going to look for someone who's selling this. Cause I, I bet it's more the former, right? And so there's so much to the creative and sort of what you're shouting and when you do it, is it between innings or during an inning and kind of like how you carry yourself. There's a lot of subtle variables there that I would imagine really impact results. You know, I kind of think of this from like from a cohort perspective, it's just, there's so much demand for every section, you know, when they want beer, when they want ice cream, when they want hot dogs and things like that. And so much of it is really more being at the right place at the right time. I do think to your point, a lot less of it is getting someone to buy a bag of peanuts who has no interest in buying a bag of peanuts. So I would say this is definitely much more performance marketing. How do you harvest demand than it is like, how do I go create desires and wants? You're not generating demand, you're harvesting demand. Yep. Got and it. It's really how do you optimize that bottom of the funnel is, is the way I think about it. Right on. Very interesting. We should jump into this idea of acquisition. So at Disney, we've had conversations before about the way you built lifecycle at Disney from the ground up, Disney Digital, and also did it with Etsy. So when you were thinking through acquisition, at each company, oh, what were some of the things that you considered? Maybe we'll start with Disney because that was such a an interesting process where it was like, "Hey, Will, there's nothing. Go!" And then you you had to basically grab all the tools and start building. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess for context, so I joined the Disney streaming team about a year before Disney Plus launched, and about two or three months before ESPN Plus launched. And all the digital products were all launched out of the New York office uh, over in Chelsea Market. And I think at the time, at least for the better part of the year, everyone knew Disney was launching a streaming product. There was no name for it. Folks didn't know how big it was going to be. But for Bob Iger, who was CEO at the time, uh, and Kevin Mayer, who was the chairman of the group and kind of the leading exec spearheading this, this was the most important thing for the company to focus on. And they made sure that there was essentially infinite resource staff to it. So Disney's a long storied company with a lot of enterprise contracts and deals and like a lot of tools that were already in place. The guidance given to the streaming team was, you don't have to go by any of those, you choose whatever it is you want from a software perspective, you can hire whomever you want. And so when I came into the role, it was basically you can hire up to 25 to 30 people, you can choose to use our existing tool stack, or you can choose not to use it. It's entirely up to you. And so, you know, I think the way we thought about it was just very first principles. This is on the shorthand, we have a very fixed timeline on when we're going to launch Disney Plus. I think unlike a traditional startup where there's a lot of product market fit testing, you have an undefined beta period. Once we announce a date, we have to hit that date. And a lot of what we need to do is kind of back that up around like, okay, what's the CRM that we need for this? Do we need a CDP? Do we need a data lake? It's all in-house. 
what do we do for that? Okay, great. Which countries do we need to be in? What are the, all the relevant like legal constraints within each country? And like, is the tool set that we're building out that fits that? And then you kind of jump into, okay, what is the actual email, SMS, push, in product alerts that you actually need to build out? What are the things that are mandatory? What are things that we need to do to really kind of tune our activation rates, engagement rates, upsell rates, all that type? And how do we actually just start from the ground up at the same time, knowing that this is like a huge brand and we're going to have a huge demand early on. And like, I think what was really interesting about that is we actually made a very distinct decision to not run any AB testing in those first two, three months. Like we just knew that so many people were going to sign up. The one, the most important thing that was in my head was like, we have to de-risk the launch because like, yes, a lot of people want to test like, Hey, what's the best way to like, optimize your, at the time there was a free trial, like how do you optimize trial to paid? How do you optimize like month one to month two? But our systems also ran a lot of things that could actually blow up the entire sign up and launch day, you know, things like one-time passcode. This is like a brand new email domain. It's an IP that we had to warm up. I think we signed up something like 10 million trials on week one. I can just say that that was vastly greater than what anyone anticipated and nothing blew up from that front. And so on, on that end, I think that was like a huge success. And while like, I'm sure folks wanted to hear like, hey, what kind of great testing that you were running in those early weeks and months? I think we all knew how big the brand was and month one or two is make sure like, don't jeopardize the launch and we'll start rolling in testing following those first few months. Yeah, so interesting. Wow. When When you were thinking about some of the, opportunity costs as far as trade-offs go, right? The constraints were that there weren't any constraints. And so you had to be pretty diligent about decision-making for things like localization. If you're thinking about countries, you're not just thinking first principles as far as like, what's the stack that we're going to use? It was so wide. And part of that, I think, is the byproduct of Disney being such an established and strong brand. What were some of the things that you thought about as a team when you had to make calculated decisions and strong decisions, but you're also going on limited data and you're making them and moving them forward, moving quickly because you're working towards a date as opposed to arbitrary, like we'll launch eventually. Like, how yeah. did you think about that? You know, I think the way that we approached that was that we wanted to prioritize the shell and not exactly what goes in it. So before we launched, because, you know, we had a relationship with Hulu, Hulu was like majority owned by Disney at that point. Now I think it's almost wholly owned or almost wholly owned. We already had a number of streaming comps and the fact that the company that Disney acquired to do much of the engineering horsepower for Disney Plus was uh, BAMTech, which basically developed like 20 streaming services for like a number of household names, WWE, MLB, F1, all that type of stuff. We already kind of had a general sense of where we thought trial to, to paid conversion would be and all the M1s, M2s, engagement and retention numbers would be. But because Disney Plus was a brand new product, we would just have no idea where we would need to focus, like which part of that customer lifecycle. And so what we knew for sure though was, hey, we needed to build a new user onboarding trip campaign that is both email and push. We knew that if people canceled the trial or they canceled the paid subscription, we would need a service or like targeted messages to bring people back. And so what we instead launched was like these basic campaigns on very basic heuristics based on what we kind of knew typical streamers behavior would be. And like, it was pretty straightforward that we had a pretty good guess as to how many people abandoned a trial. Cool. How many subs would that lead to? 
what is the right messaging that we need to set up for that? How many people would like, and, and we already knew this is pretty normal for all subscription services. You're going to lose a majority of users the first 90 days. The curve will flatten generally anywhere between month three and month nine, which is pretty typical. So we wanted to make sure that we had all of the messaging set up automated so that the situation we didn't want to be in is wait all the way until month four, until we had four now four monthly cohorts of data, and then realize, oh, hey, this is the month we need to focus on. Great, what do we need? And then that was the time you started building. What we wanted to do is build all of that ahead of time so that when we got to that point, the only thing we need to do is really test messaging, test what the right recommendations were, test what content things or offers that we needed to make at that point so that all the systems were in place as opposed to just waiting for, maybe a better way of saying it is to be proactive with what kinds of programs we would need versus being entirely reactive. And so the hard part is, of course, figuring out what the content and what the messages need to be. But we were pretty sure that we needed a user onboarding flow, a re-engagement flow, a win-back flow, and an upsell flow. Very, very cool. Yeah, JM's been doing a lot of deep diving on cohort analysis. Just did one, I guess it was yesterday when drifted out to the team. But looking at the data that we have now and then thinking about how can we glean insights from that moving forward based on what we have. And so a lot of learnings around there, but there's also so much work to do to get to a point where we have, as we ramp up to lift off, which is something JM has been spearheading. How do we think about all of the flows that we need to build out from an engagement standpoint, from an awareness standpoint, from a conversion standpoint, there's so much work to do. Were there any lessons that you learned through those experiments that you ran early on that yielded something that was surprising to you and maybe like unintuitive? So my biggest learning, and because, you know, the organization that I was in is just a giant machine and we weren't the only lifecycle team. Disney has maybe hundreds of products and each one has their own lifecycle team. So you can imagine like the noise of ideas and best practices that were true for business A, that weren't true for business B, but then you had so much different <laughs> feedback. And I think the interesting part where this kind of really materialized is, and this is my biggest learning is, hey, how do you implement segmentation? And my approach has always been, generally, I, you know, I don't care what the segments are, I don't have a bias, but for them to be good segments, one, each segment needs to be distinct from another. And you know they're distinct because their behaviors and patterns and the KPIs between like signup rates, engagement rates, retention rates are pretty consistent within that group and don't vary much over time. So, you know, if group A performs at 50% signup rate and has 80% month three retention, if you wait a year and acquire that same segment, they should perform something close to that band. And I think we first kicked off this exercise and it was, of course, like every group was involved, not just our group. You can imagine everyone had an opinion around what Disney Plus's segmentation should be. You have one school of thought, which is like, oh, we should bucket these by fans. We have Marvel fans and Star Wars fans and like these types of things. You have other buckets who think it's like it should be regional or by country or something like that. And on and on and on. You, you can assume all those things. And one of the great things that our data team there did was like, okay, we're just going to go look at all the data and figure out what these distinct groups are. And then in partnership with our product marketing team, we are going to go do some user research and figure out who these folks are, draw the commonalities, survey them, and actually then come up with like a basic heuristic name that people can then understand and start like thinking about their marketing and messaging towards. Mm -hmm. Again, 
I would say the number one thing everyone thought our segmentation was going to be was based on fandom. What it ended up turning out to be was actually just, we had, we had four groups. We basically had people who liked, I wish we had a better word leaning into this, but it was basically like very male leaning content. So like a lot of Star Wars, Star Marvel Wars, type stuff. Marvel, yeah. Um, yep. You had a lot more like content that tends to appeal to like a more of a female audience. The Billie Eilish concert, the Beyonce concert, things like that. And then you had kids content for young kids. So think grade school kids and then teenagers. Those are the four groups. All their behavior is completely different. They're also consistently different over like a one plus year cohort, like monthly cohorts over a year plus. Uh, and that ended up being like the true segmentation and all of our content marketing, engagement marketing, retention marketing was kind of built, built upon. I don't, I don't know if this answer your question, but I think what was most interesting to me was I think being from smaller companies prior to Disney, you're like, oh, we'll look at the data. It'll take you about a week. You'll, you'll jam on it by week two right. groups. This was maybe a six month process. To totally. So the whole company. I'd like to double click on that a bit. That was super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And I love the service and we are a grade school slash female home yep. here. Marvel and Star Wars are not my jam, but whatever dollars I spend, it's the best that I spend every month. So it sounds like the instinct was, oh, we'll have our Marvel people and our Star Wars people and maybe our Simpsons people and our Bluey people. Got to give a shout out to Bluey. But it ended up being something that you derived instead from data that maybe was like a little more blurry than that. Is that like a fair kind of yeah, recap absolutely. of what you said? Yeah, Interesting. Because it probably gets hard in families where they're sharing, where the like usage uh, will just look totally bizarre you know like little yep. mermaid and marvel or i don't know maybe that's not so bizarre actually but things like that yeah i mean i think where this kind of materializes you know we just spent a lot of time into spending on how the uh logistics were done but where this kind of really materializes is from a messaging standpoint it's who do you message what how often do you need to message them and when do you need to message them because it's disney no surprise both of the segments that involved basically young adults and kids, their engagement rates were through the roof. We were never worried about churn whatsoever. And so that actually really just turned out to be one of our least communicated to towards groups. And where our focus area basically focused in on was basically all our action content that was focused on people without kids and then a lot more of the female leading content. So I just opened up my email and I wanted to count how many emails I got from the service. And it seems like it's roughly three or four per week, yep. which is a lot, but not too much that I've like noticed that it's too much. So I was wondering how you think about frequency and repeating if someone is opening the emails or it's not, I tend to not open them. I just sort of archive them. Are you reading or I understand that you're not there anymore, but would it be there practice to read into those signals? Are there ideas about what is too much? Is it the amount that I use the service that is driving that? I'd love to hear something on that. Yeah. So this was a regular debate, less so within our team, but in terms of how we service all the different teams and all the different goals for the service. It, it was an interesting conversation <laughs> to say the least. But the philosophy that at least our team took was that there's a near-term goal and then there's a long-term goal. The near-term goal is that the purpose of this messaging is to keep subscribers engaged. 
And for us, you know, through a lot of our data analyses, things like that is for the most part, if folks were at least engaged within a two week period, we're in a good spot. You know, this is a monthly service. As long as you watch something once a month, you derive some kind of value from it. Once you get into that three plus weeks in active state, and you can imagine, right, if you go from three weeks to two months to three months to four months, yeah. your probability, like at some point, you're going to get to 100% probability of churn. And you're the only people you, who don't are probably the people who don't realize you're paying for the service, to be honest. <laughs> and so the near term was that, how do we keep people from like falling beyond that three weeks of inactivity? So there's like a baseline level of content, but a lot of what we ended up doing was that when you get to that point, there becomes a much bigger ratchet of like how much messages you get. And internally, our whole goal is basically, we need to introduce a new message that can only help or at least is neutral to the engagement behavior. And so we tested a ton of different messages and a ton of different content types, but we don't keep it unless there was a neutral or positive impact to like likelihood or, or incremental minutes stream is a metric that we use. The other part of that around like the long-term consideration, because like the flip side is, well, email's free, so to speak. Why don't you just send it like one a day and dial it down? Is that where the business hasn't evolved yet, but this is my now an outsider hunch, is that the Dizzy machine is that most people become Dizzy fans, become Dizzy fans for life. And there's all sorts of ways you engage with the business, whether it's going to parks, going to theaters, buying merchandise, buying trading cards, and now subscribing to Disney Plus. The business really hasn't really, like from a Disney Plus perspective, the sole goal right now is to get people into the service and fully engaged. And there isn't a huge goal in like, hey, how do you like get these people into parks? And how do you like sell people more hoodies or things like that? The one thing we wanted to make sure we preserved in our short-term optimization is by the time that becomes a priority, I don't want people rolling their eyes at like Disney Plus emails because this is a machine that like spams you two times a day. Like, like we would really destroy the channel and really destroy like the long-term strategic value that a lifecycle channel can provide the business. And so those, that, that was a little bit of a mix of the short and long-term things we we're looking to balance. When you first went down the path of conversion, I remember that was the focus. And then it was like a light switch where as soon as people converted, it was all about retention and creating value through the content that you're putting out. So it wasn't just a matter of consideration to try to probe people like, hey, go use a service. Like that's always sort of an underlying goal. But I remember you framed it as something along the lines where we only want to give people information that they find valuable. So the value might actually be consideration for a new piece of content. It also might be like, I'm making this up, but it was like, read this article about something because you were always thinking through what's the Marvel clan? What's the young family going to be interested in? And it was a really interesting lens because that's not a typical approach for life cycle. Like most life cycles going to be focused on this idea of just like always trying to get people to click on something to do something else. And it was a different approach, especially given the size of the audience that you were working with yeah yeah so i guess it's funny because one of the big influences on my philosophy going into it actually came from ben horowitz and reading his book uh i think the hard things about hard things and now that i actually work in Jason horowitz it's kind of like a full circle moment but i remember a long time ago reading that book there's a passage in there where i think ben was sitting on a board meeting 
And one of the executives at a startup basically like was saying, oh, hey, retention was really bad, but it's because we couldn't get this email campaign out. And I think the feedback was like, the retention isn't bad because you didn't send an email, the retention is bad because your customers didn't like the product. <laughs> and that really resonated with me. And you know, it's really easy when your team's responsibility is all communications and to really get lost in just saying like, well, we own emails push in products, so let's just do more of that. When there is a whole point of like, people don't retain because of this message. But what this message can do is help someone who's on the fence, who's otherwise gonna like drift off and maybe use it to bring people back. And that was like a large part of the philosophy where it's like, for a streamer that basically releases weekly content, a lot of what's underpins what we were trying to do is, one, is there a piece of content that got released that if someone who's not using the service knew about, they would come back stream and they would stay in that healthy on streaming at least once every three weeks. And that, that was really the philosophy that we took as opposed to this. We're blasting people all the time with like no discrimination whatsoever sort of thing. Now, that's what you do now. The Beatles, that, I mean, that must have driven a gajillion subscriptions of such an amazing, you know, like eight hours. And in Kanto and Hamilton before that, there must be these like big moments where this is something that a very wide audience will enjoy and could be a reason to sign up. I would imagine it's also just like a prompt. Hey, reminder, this movie is on the service. So when you're making the decision of like what to show your kids or what to put on at night, like, oh yeah, I saw that email. It makes a ton of sense. But the underlying product is really, really great. And people want it sort of anyway. And so I think what you're saying is you can like tap it in the basket. You know, it's like an alley-oop and you're giving it a little bit of a push. But the underlying want is sort of already there. And I, I think that's very similar for us too. Folks are into what we're doing because they've read our free content or they're just kind of aware, they listen to the podcast, they care about it because they're human. And we're just sort of showing them the way in instead of yeah. making like a hard pitch. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a way to think about it as well with the content, you know, you brought up mass appeal content. It's, you know, on the life cycle front, you're really kind of on like the front lines of things. So you will see data and you will be able to interpret the data quicker than you can kind of pass it up the line to the people, the rear general, sort of, so to speak. And so from our segmentation very, very early on, we could take a look at our upcoming calendar release. We know like which audience that release is really kind of meant to be. Some things are mass appeal, but a lot of things kind of tend to fall between like at most one of those four segments. And there will be times where we'll see like, hey, we, we have to like ring the bell. There's not a lot of content for this, like people who like female identified leaning content who don't have kids. And there's nothing on the calendar for like four or five months. <laughs> and, you know, we could flag that with a lot of folks who handle content. But, you know, the tricky thing about this business is that Everything you're watching today was greenlit a year ago, like a year plus ago. So there isn't like this immediate, hey, how do you spin things up? I think maybe after a few months, that message of, hey, how to treat these two, what I would say like greater to be at risk of churn audiences <laughs> ended up trickling into across the content orgs. And now there's a, a big focus on like spending more on content, especially for the non-kids content side of things. And so tying that back to what you brought up about like, Mass appeal, I would say it's not as mass appeal as you think. 
And there's certainly key subscriber groups that don't always, like the, the content release doesn't always appeal to. I think that's going to change very, very soon. But also the one big thing is when we launched in the first year, because we signed up so many people, we basically hit our five-year target number in under a year. Because I think the five-year target was 60 to 90 million subs over five years. And I think we like crossed over 100 by month 11, something like that. Amazing. But Amazing. the thing, the, the life cycle challenge was that the content schedule was built for like a subscriber base of like 30 or 40 million. It's like, oh crap, we got this pull forward. What do we do now? And so we tried our best to repackage existing library content and a lot of our partners, but then like the studios tried to pull content from elsewhere to get them onto the, the service. But you know, it, a lot of this is, these are things that I think all products, not just Disney solve over time, where like core of Disney plus what the product is, is less the tech end, it's really the content and the IP. And the folks who are basically like, optimizing the surface area, be it the actual streaming app or like the extension, things like lifecycle, you know, push notifications is over time that stuff converges. So everyone is looking at the same data. They're all completely aligned. It just takes some time in kind of pulling those things together. So cool to hear it firsthand from behind the scenes, because from the outside, it was such a killer launch. Like it was such a cool thing to watch and to see all the media around it, just following nerdy things like TechCrunch and whatever media sources to watch this thing come to life and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like N number of subscribers in a day, a week, whatever it was. And it was very visible. It was very cool to see that come together and then to hear how you hit these targets so quickly. And then some of the implications of like, uh oh, we don't have enough content based on the number of like we, we do, but we don't have enough content to really sustain the subscriber base. Everything yeah. always flexes when you get that type of oscillation. Yeah, or maybe put it in a different way. It's, um, I, I wouldn't say we can't sustain the audience, but a larger percent of this audience is in this at-risk three-plus weeks of inactivity bucket. If you're not using a monthly service at least once a month, I think that's pretty basic to understand. You're going to be at risk of churning. You're not deriving any value from it. And so there were these lulls, and I don't believe they're there anymore. This is just year one challenges where it's, what do we do about these lulls? The at-risk bucket continues I wouldn't say it continues to grow, but it's large enough where it could be a concern. What's everything we can do from a life cycle perspective to keep these cohorts and these groups engaged with the service? Mm -hmm. One of the thoughts around what you did jumping into performance at Dropbox. So Dropbox launches in 07. There's this flywheel that is a case study <laughs> about user referrals and how that led to all of this initial growth. And I think it was 15 when you came on. So what did that look like as far as the way you used performance as a lever to drive growth? And how did some of those things change as far as like user referrals and then shifting into maybe a different approach for acquisition? Yep. yep. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of folks kind of know the early days of like the Dropbox story, you know, uh, Drew and the early team launched this amazing, I think it's like 60 to 90 second stick figure explanation where like, anyone and everyone can explain what Dropbox does. And it was a really groundbreaking product in terms of like how things just, you know, it, it was a model people said internally where it's just worked, right? It, it just did. And that plus the viral mechanism of give space, get space, really, really kind of like got that whole entire service on the free side, really, really ramped up. And when I joined around 2015, that was at the same time launch of Dropbox business was called Dropbox Teams at that time. I think the story internally was that we're noticing a lot of business using it. The current like SaaS movement 
wasn't really a movement back then. It's just people just saw so much value. A lot of employees were just like, I'm going to sign up for this. I don't care what IT says. Like they can slap me on the wrist later sort of thing. <laughs> and so folks internally noticed this. They're like, oh, wow, we should just bundle this service and like sell it to businesses. And over time, more and more features got and it became a whole kind of business class product. And at the time, the only go-to-market motion the firm had was the viral loop. And they were only starting to build a sales org. And the viral referral loop, like that's just not how businesses share. That is how businesses share internally. Like when you get three or four people within a company, the internal loop works, but like that doesn't really jump to another company. And so what's interesting when I joined was that a lot of the folks there, there's maybe there's 300 people there, 20 were business folks, the other 280 all uh, engineer product design. The folks were thinking like, how do we get business customers? <laughs> And I remember coming in uh, initially as a consultant, just like, like, yeah, you know, you can totally run performance marketing. Like, oh, that doesn't work. I'm like, why do you think it doesn't work? I go on YouTube, I find this like video of Drew doing like a YC presentation, something like that around like CACs being like $1,000. We don't want to do this. And that's why they like lean so heavy into it. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But a free user doesn't generate anything. And let's say you only convert 1% of them to $100 product, your user's only worth a buck. This is a $1,000 minimum business product. <laughs> Your whole CAC to LTV ratio is completely different now. We should drop that, I would say, institutional knowledge, which is probably true for the free user and is true for the free user aspect. But all the economics has changed. Let's relaunch performance. Let's test it. Let's see if this works. And that, that was really just kind of the story of like how performance marketing started. And, and in my first three months, just consulting there, we proved that to be a channel. I think in those first... Just six months alone, performance was somewhere in like 10 to 20% of all signups and like a significant enough number where they're like, okay, here's more budget, go hire a team, go launch out the performance acquisition side of things. And did that lead to Amazing. an enterprise or a B2B approach where you went deeper from the sales perspective because you had the insight as opposed to just saying, because you could run performance and it can be focused on consumer, but the unlock is like, oh my goodness, look, we have businesses that are using it. And then it becomes that play. Was that sort of something that you consider? Well, you know, so my biggest learning there is that performance marketing is just a, a tactic, but you can't really change what CPMs are and CPMs or CPCs, whatever metric you want to go with, really affect your CAC. And at the end of the day, everything's guided by your CAC to LTV ratio or in a more simpler explanation. You can't overpay for what total revenue your customer is ultimately going to generate for you. You can't sell a, a dollars for dimes. That is not a recipe for success. What was interesting, we, we were resourced at the time, like it was unclear what our, our business go-to-market model was, or that we were testing everything. So there was literally three different teams. You had an enterprise team, I think it was called Lighthouse at the time, who was you know, focused on selling to the Fortune 500. We want logos, we want case studies, we want to get into the world's biggest companies. You had a mid-market team, which is more your kind of like traditional, go get leads, farm these leads from like our existing users. We will run uh, some SDR calls through them and AE will then talk to them. And then once they sign, we'll move them into a customer success team sort of thing or account management team. And then you had the third group, which was the self-serve group. And what Dropbox had at the time was something like 200 million free user accounts uh, and, and free individual paid user accounts. I think it's like well over that now. And we were trying all three things. And at least from what I recalled, the Lighthouse Enterprise stuff will always makes sense because like the logos are important. It helps like 
give you social proof from like a B2B perspective in terms of like winning new customers. The mid-market front, that model always works, but you know, if you really kind of take a look at what our like average selling prices, you know, at the time it was sub 10K in that space. In my head, it didn't really make a lot of sense to spend like 25 to 50 bucks a lead, spend all the energy to qualify them, have SDR spend multiple calls to make sure that their sales accepted leads and then handing them off to an AE without any upsell product down the road. A service like Salesforce does that, but I think their ASP is like in the hundreds of thousands. And then once you're in, you have 10 other products in the hundreds of thousands that you can cross sell to. And you know that model, I don't think really kind of worked for that type of business. And what's really interesting is as I was testing that self-serve side uh, that was run by a gentleman named uh, John Carlos, who's awesome, kind of like early days, product-led growth uh, person. I think, you know, he came over from Atlassian who kind of knew a lot of like how that stuff was done. His group kind of ended up being kind of the, the winning formula, <laughs> which is they were basically doing product-led growth before that term became as popular as, as it is today. And a lot of it was how do you basically fish from the existing user base? How do you identify free and individual users within a company and how do you like get them into like a business plan very very cool i could listen to those stories all day <laughs> how did you think about ltv in those early days dropbox when you don't really have a full lifetime to measure value of you know it's interesting well because I, i've been out of performance marketing for like five years now, you know, that was yeah. kind of one of my last performance marketing roles before I wanted to branch out into life cycle and the other uh, parts of the funnel, so to speak. That was still very early days, like kind of like SaaS metrics and KPIs weren't really solidified yet. Right. And we, we actually used to use this metric that no one ever uses anymore, but I thought it was very helpful. We use payback period, which is basically a different way of looking at LTV. So it's basically like if ASP is hundred dollars a month and you acquired a customer for a thousand dollars your payback period is 10 months and mm -hmm. a lot of this was mostly more assumption driven because you know this was like month two of the business product ever being in market like no one's modeled ltv ever actually materializes to be true right <laughs> and so yeah. it's more helpful for us to know like at the current rate that we're acquiring customers how long will it take for them to kind of pay back if they 100% stay subscribed at the exact right. same rate? And that was a much more helpful guiding point, I think, in those early days before, like you had a real LTV model to like smell check your, your payback targets. Got it. And that reminds you a little bit of return on ad spend, which it's sort of the inverse of that. And that's what we use a little bit now for the small, for the little that we do right now. Most of it is, uh, you know, is organic at this point for us. Yeah, got to dig into this other growth lever, which you had exposure and you've got a lens on is everything around Twitch when you worked with Twitch and driving growth through SEO. What did that lens look like? And that's why it's so cool to hear because you've had so many different parts of the stack and so many different levers that you've had exposure to that everything from cotton candy and selling peanuts all the way up to Lifecycle with Disney. There are so many stories to share. So we'd love to dig into that idea of when you worked with Twitch, what were some of the things that you were thinking through with SEO and how were you approaching it knowing that there's product-driven SEO, there's content-driven SEO, and there are all these different aspects to it? Yeah, we'd love to dig into that. Yeah, so 
I worked with Twitch very briefly as a outside consultant as well. I think it was a little bit under a year working directly with their um, engineering team, uh, the search and discovery team. And I think at the time, Twitch had just been acquired by Amazon for under a year. And there's just a lot of opportunity, right? Like Twitch is this amazing platform. They dominate the platform for streamers and all types of gamers. And, and they've kind of withstood every single competitor from YouTube gaming to, I think, Microsoft's Mixer for a little bit. And, and they're still the number one streaming platform. And I think at the time there was like questions around like, hey, is there stuff we can do in SEO? Uh, I went in to basically kind of just do a general audit to see like where things are. And I think the biggest learning here, and there's a lot more folks who kind of done this now or are aware of this now is the opportunity for them was really more of that. It was an engineering led org. The streaming service was highly built on React. The way React works is not good for SEO. And most of what we really identified is that Twitch, if you search any game on Google, whether it's Call of Duty, Warzone, Fortnite, Destiny, whatever it is, there's no reason why Twitch should not be like a top five result, much like if you search the company's name, that their crunch base appears, their Wikipedia appears, like all below the actual .com of the, the home. And at the time, I think all of the Twitch pages were sitting like on page two, page three. And if anyone is not familiar with SEO, if you're not on page one, you're not getting any traffic. And then all of the traffic generally goes to top three. Of the fold on it, yeah. Yes, exactly. And in every year, there's a new ad that pops up that pushes that fold a little further down. Yeah. <laughs> but it really is kind of like top half at minimum page one. And, you know, that was like an interesting experience. And like, I, I would like roll that up into a, um, what I would say is the general balance between like building great products, which Twitch is, but then also not leaving too much growth debt on the table, right? Where like mm -hmm. React is absolutely the right technology choice for them, but to make React work for SEO. And the way React kind of works, like I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going to explain this right. If you use a crawler to go to a React-driven website, a crawler which only reads text sees nothing. And so there's a number of things you need to do to serve up the text so that when the Google crawler or another search engine crawler goes to a Twitch page for Warzone, they know that this page is about Warzone. At the time, all they could tell was that, oh, the URL is twitch.tv slash Warzone. Maybe it's about Warzone? I don't really know. <laughs> and by having more content and actual clips show up, the streamer name show up, like all the text around it could only have helped send that signal. And because Twitch was just so popular, these are just one of those opportunities where like, this is like a pure example of let's make this minor change and top five is literally in your line of sight. There is no reason why you should not be top five. Now, my, my project ended at the recommendation handoff, so I'm not too sure like what ended up getting done and where that netted, but maybe I'm like exaggerating the, the possibilities of this. But, you know, I, I think a lot of us as like just seeing casual fans, is, there's really is no reason why Twitch can't be the Wikipedia version of SEO result for games. Yeah, there's so many wow. opportunities with it because riffing on it, essentially you could have the content that is about the different streamers and that's like its own play. But there's also this other play that seems a little bit growth hacky, but it also would help with things like SEO. And that's if every single stream has an associated transcript with it and you've got this massive body of text, like it's not going to be perfect given that let's assume that it's not perfectly corrected just given the scale of content that's getting put out, but having that hosted in some way where that allows the results to come up to the top of fold so much 
easier or so much faster because you're not just going, cool, what's that? Like, what's the slug on the end of that thing? You actually have like meaningful content where it gets a little bit hacky and scrappy is like, there's going to be a lot, especially with streamers, there's going to be a lot of just sort of filler content that might not actually talk about the thing that they're doing. But yeah, there's so many different avenues that you can go with something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Could we circle back to your time at Oscar? Yeah. So Oscar, for folks who don't know, so like uh, the Affordable uh, Care Act uh, kind of passed kind of in like the tail days of Obama. It did a number of things that basically like give affordable access to health insurance plans to something like the 25% or so, something like that of basically uninsured Americans at the time. And the biggest challenge with being uninsured was basically healthcare costs are like the leading reason for bankruptcy. And while most people might not need it, it's one of those like low risk, but if you are the unlucky number that RNG of life chooses, you, it's basically financial catastrophe in many types of ways. So Oscar was one of the companies basically emerged as one of the leading, uh, basically Obamacare-based plans at the time. And my background's mostly been 15 years of growth marketing, but I like to change industries every two years. So at that point, I did SaaS. I did e-commerce at, at eBay. I did mobile gaming at this place called Rumble Games. And I'm like, you know, I want to go do healthcare. Right now I'm doing VC, but like I want to do healthcare at the time. And I think a lot of it was really just the mission-driven part of it is yeah, as like a growth marketer. At this time where I asked myself like, okay, I love the people at Dropbox. I love what the product does. But let's say we, you do a phenomenal job at growth. What does that actually do? You get more people involved. You know, if you kind of take that to what Oscar's mission was, is like you're giving more access to healthcare and you're mostly just limiting like the negative effects of not being insured in case something happened to you. I'm like, oh, that seems like a very worthy mission. Let me, let me just kind of jump, jump right in. And so I guess what would be interesting to talk about Oscar is I would say the biggest thing I learned about Oscar is that from a performance marketing and growth marketing standpoint, there's always like a dumb idea at any given moment that people would be like, you're stupid, you're crazy. Why would you do that? That is a phenomenally good idea because everyone thinks it's dumb and it becomes remarkably cheap. I wasn't responsible for this. The company was already doing this when I joined. But when I first moved to New York, they were the only person like plastering subway cars, all Oscar ads, very creative, very funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the longest subway car is typically 10 cars. So one car will be all Oscar stuff. And you send any other car, like at the time, it was like, basically personal injury lawyer ads and like, you want to try this like clinical trial kind of thing. And like, basically it was dirt cheap. Like that's how cheap it was. And the first two years of Oscar before I joined, so I take no credit in any of this stuff. The subway ads was their number one sign up driver. It was very low cats. You couldn't measure it from a like itemized perspective, but total invested and total people in a sign up survey that said like, I'm here because of the subway ad was phenomenal. And my biggest takeaway was basically there was something like that every year so like you know don't write something off just because it doesn't make sense in your head or there's no case studies to it mm. those are really good ads i have a few open now on my desktop and i remember them i was actually wondering like how regulation would impact what you would do for those ads and and really if there was any impact i believe selling insurance is a regulated activity so maybe you can yeah so on that. this was the most interesting thing because i i 
to that point, I had not thought about it when I joined. It's performance marketing in virtually every other sector. It's this Cactel TV ratio. And so when, as soon as I went in, I was like, oh, Cactel TV, all that stuff. And then uh, someone kindly told me, like, you can't look at LTV, it's illegal. Why not? It's like, oh, I get it. Because what adds to cost and in health insurance is utilization, how often you're using your plan. And you, what you don't want to do is basically build a program that kind of purposely excludes people who have high needs. So these could be people with terminal illnesses, things like that. And immediately I thought, okay, yeah, that is a really bad idea. <laughs> we won't look at LTV. We will like take a look. That was sort of the point of the, of the ACA, right? I mean, yep. in like a nutshell. Yeah. Yep. 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 Exactly. And so, you know, it became much more of a straightforward, how do you acquire customers? How do you get folks who, uh, and it, what was interesting is this is like the ultimate seasonal product. The, the only close analogy would be something like TurboTax during April 15th. It's open enrollment is like a three month period, but 90% of people sign up like right before the deadline <laughs> to pick a plan. And so a lot of it ended up becoming like, how do you load up for that period? Because if you, uh, better words, try to get too cute to stick a landing, if you miss it, there's no way to recoup those right. uh, potential subs you could have gotten if uh, until the next open enrollment period. It's very cool to see the way that out of home was used because a lot of companies shy away from it because of the lack of attribution. But then you see some companies go really deep on it. So Spotify is notorious for having like these massive out of home campaigns where they're plastered, not just in one city, but they're plastered across the entire country, right? And there's still a ton of opportunity with it, but you have to find what that unlock is. And so when thinking through, like when it was done with Oscar, was there a reason why it was so deep in New York or was it geographically distributed? What did that look like around those decisions? So, I mean... Again, I take no credit for any of this. This was kind of done by some like smarter people there before my time. But you know what I would say the learning is, this is the hindsight learning, is that was really just unique to the New York market. There, there were other cities that out of home did decently well, but there was a couple of things that made it particularly strong in New York. Number one, New York is the only, or New York City specifically, is the only major metro area where it's not dominated by one or two health insurer providers. If you look at every other major city, two companies own like 60%, 70%, something like that of all the health insurer market share. Like, you know, in California, it's the Blues, it's Kaiser in certain parts of California, it's Anthem in certain areas. New York's kind of the only area where there's no single dominant player. And then the other thing is that it's also a city where everyone just takes the subway, everyone sits in the subway, they got nothing to do for 20 minutes. And one of my takeaways from it was that the subway ads actually always worked. And I think it took the fact that no one believed in it where the CPMs actually made sense. You know, the cost of actually getting someone to see a subway ad. Essentially, that's kind of what we saw on Facebook over the past few years where like, there was a period of time, like in the early days of say gaming advertising, no one was advertising on Facebook. So like everything you saw on your feed, maybe about eight years ago was all games. Game LTV, like for a casual game, is like under 10 bucks. You can't really advertise it anymore because basically, like people with LTVs over $100 are advertising. You kind of price up the people who can only afford to pay 10 bucks a user type of thing. <laughs> and I would say that was basically what was going on with subways in New York, where a huge part of the population was on it every day. The eyeballs were there. 
but there was no competition for their eyeballs from a cost perspective because there was no other advertiser in the marketplace. No one was in the aisle selling cotton candy. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Love it. I love that when everyone's in the office, you've got the A16Z backgrounds, <laughs> the different ones. Yeah, it's a nice touch, I think. We have a, a I don't know, it's almost like a, like a fashion brand. Uh, we get like quarterly drops. So every time there's a new season, we get like 10 new ones. Do you really? Yeah, we do. We I do. like it. Let me see. Let's see what we have here. Unlimited fashion budget. Exactly. Mark came on our forum last week and he was in like a, I don't know, Dolce and Gabbana. Like there is like pretty dark. And <laughs> it was definitely fashion, very fashion driven. It's funny that that's sort of the brand. That's amazing. 